All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, if you'll grab it and make your way to um, where Cody was just reading from, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14, all the way through 19. We won't stop at 17, but that's all right. Uh, just playing around, having some fun. That's on page 995 in the Bibles around you if you don't have one with you. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, take it home. You can have that one. It'll be our gift to you. But page 995, while you're getting there, congratulations to those of you who finished another year of school. Uh, personally, I am gra- glad that Maycember is over uh, with four kids in school. It was insane this last week. So I'm so glad that that is over. And then a particular congratulations to those of you who either have graduated or who will be graduating today. I know uh, Brant. Hopper and uh, Chase Davis will be graduating at two o'clock today. So uh, congratulations to those, uh, those guys as well as those who've already graduated. But with graduation in mind, what we have before us in this text that Cody read really could be like a commencement address uh, to Christians. It really kind of reads that way in a lot of ways. Because what the Apostle Paul lays out for us here uh, in this text are, are like four essentials Um, For Christians, for essential actions or works that must be ongoingly present in our lives uh, if we want to be a disciple, a good disciple, as is so often uh, 2 Timothy is characterized as kind of a letter about being a good disciple. That if you're going to live for Christ, this section is just laying out these four essentials that if you're going to live for Christ that he calls us to do as a good disciple, then these are essentials that must be continually lived out. And, and so you think about a commencement address, a lot of times you're just kind of like, hey, here's some parting words of wisdom as you go out into the world. And so this are four essentials for Christians now. As you go out into the world, the difference, though, is that we're talking about living for Christ and under his authority rather than living for ourselves and under our own authority. But that's what we're going to be talking about, these four essentials of a good disciple and very specifically like things we need to do if we are a Christian. But before we jump into that, I want to caution us about something because there is a tendency sometimes for us, especially as we start talking about, you know, walking in obedience and and works and things that we need to do as good disciples, there's a danger that we will subtly begin to shift and rely on those things as the basis for our right standing before God rather than Christ. We'll start basing it on our works and what we're doing rather than on what Christ has done for us. There's always a danger. So we want to be on guard against that. I mean, even as the students have been talking about on Wednesday night, they've been going through the book of James, which is about faith and works. Faith and works always go together. Always. They should be together. But it begins with faith. And so if you've not been converted to Jesus Christ... It doesn't matter if you follow, we've described 2 Timothy as like the job description of a a Christian. It doesn't matter if you follow this job description to a T if you've not been converted to Christ. If you've not been converted first, then all of your best efforts, all of your works are for nothing. Because without a new heart, 
regenerated by the Spirit of God. As one guy puts it, it's like climbing Mount Everest in a Speedo with no oxygen and no pickaxe. You're not going to make it. You're simply not. You can't get there. Because without a new heart, it is an impossibility to be pleasing to God. It's the sacrifice of Christ alone that makes us right with God. Where he takes our lack of righteousness and our wickedness upon himself and then he gives to us his righteousness. And that's what gives us the ability to stand right before God. Not our works, his works. And so let's be careful that we don't subtly shift to a works-based salvation. We can only be justified or made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then if we are justified, if we have been made right with God, well then our actions are to be in keeping with that. And that's what 2 Timothy really is all about. That's what the job description is all about. If that has happened in your life, if that is true, then this is how you're to live your life. If you have not been converted, then this is a lesson to you on what Christians should look like. And I pray that it will be helpful in your life, even in drawing you to himself, if you do not yet know Christ. And so with all of that in mind, let's now turn our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and what really would be kind of an incredible commencement address. And kind of in honor of that, I'm going to preach it as almost like a charge to all of us, like we're graduates, okay? A charge to all of us. And so a charge about four essentials of a good disciple. And here is essential number one. Essential number one in your notes, watch your mouth. It's essential number one, watch your mouth. Look at verses 14 and 16 with me here in the text. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And so you have these two commands, don't quarrel about words and avoid irreverent babble because this does no good. It only ruins, all right? The Greek word for ruin there is catastrophe. The hearers and the, it, it, it ruins the hearers and it leads people, verse 16, into more and more ungodliness. In, in August of 2005, uh, Haley was four months old And I quit a good job in Atlanta and we moved to Wake Forest, North Carolina so I could go to seminary and get a master's degree in pastoral ministry and just, you know, get ready to to go into ministry. And so there, August of 2005, got there and I was a first year seminary student. All right. Now, a little secret. First year seminary students, as well as just the general population theological equivalent, which is are the worst people on earth to be around. Because they have just enough theological education, but not enough ministerial wisdom or humility. And so they feel like they are God's gift to Christianity that's been missing for 2,000 years, and they are here to clear everything up for everybody. And so they will fight about 
any little word in the Bible and particularly on things that don't really matter. They are the worst. What Paul is saying here is word fights like this, they're nothing more than time-consuming, ego-building wastes of time. It's just intellectual jockeying back and forth and it leads to quarrels and arguments and ruins the hearers. And friends, when pastors participate in this kind of silliness bowed up by their pride, it often results in a church split or some other ruin, catastrophe in the church. And so listen, I want you to grow in your knowledge of God. The Bible, pretty much every single page, talks about growing in sound doctrine. This is something we are to do, commanded by God. It's a good and right thing. But endlessly debating things that just don't matter, or we can't really even know for sure, that helps no one. So let's be careful on that. Let's watch our mouth. Similarly, engaging in irreverent babble helps no one. In fact, verse 16 says that it leads to more and more ungodliness. Now, some of that irreverent babble is straight up false teaching, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But I think one of the most prevalent applications of where we see irreverent babble today is on social media. Folks, listen to me. No one in the history of man has ever been argued from their position on social media. It doesn't happen. Understand how that works too. All you see in your feed are things that they know you will like to see or will scare you to death. And so you'll read it. And so they will just make things look horrible and you'll clickbait on it. Or they'll, if you're on a different side of the aisle, make things look scary and clickbait for that. And so engaging in these debates on social media and getting into a tit-for-tat on that, that is nothing more than answering a fool according to his folly. So don't do that. Don't go there. Avoid irreverent babble. Don't be going back and forth. Verse 16 leads to more and more ungodliness, both in you and in others. And we don't fight fire with fire. Other people may not play by God's rules, but if you are a Christian, you must. And so if you're just an absolute jerk, or maybe you are the fool on social media, right? self-righteous, harsh, unempathetic, looking down upon people who do not agree with you as if they are stupid or a lesser person, if that's you, you are not commending the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In fact, you're probably deterring from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And maybe that's because actually you don't know the gospel in the sense that of actually having been converted. Because as Jesus said in Luke 6, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And so, friends, an essential of a good disciple is that we watch our mouths. Okay? And so watch your mouth. That's essential number one. Essential number two, watch your life. 
All right, essential number two, watch your life. Look at verse 15 with me. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, right? Do your best, be diligent, work hard at it to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. And so right off the bat, you have this call here to be diligent at this, all right, watching your life and to work hard and to keep close watch on your lives. Because we have a tendency as sinners, as humans, to drift, to wander, okay, to drift in our orthodoxy, which is right belief, and to drift in our orthopraxy, which is right practice, to drift in what reigns supreme in our lives, Jesus or ourselves, to drift in the love of Christ and let the concerns of the world crowd Christ out. We have a tendency to this. I mean, we sang a song a couple of minutes ago, Come Thou Fount, written in 1757 by a guy named Robert Robertson, Robinson. He wrote it two years after he was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield. And in that song, he... We have these lines that we sang. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And Chad was praying about it, right? Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Like he writes that because that's common to Humanity, we are, it's common to Christians, we are prone to wander. And that's why we must watch our lives. And that's why community is so important. And having people who can speak into your life. And then you having the humility and wisdom to listen and heed that advice. From people who love you. And fight your sin. To be as John Owen, the Puritan put it. Be killing sin, lest it be killing you. And so we want to watch our life. But there was something in this text this week that just blessed me personally. Just personally. I shared it with the staff on Monday. As I reread this section on Monday for the first time, you know, this week. And as I came to verse 15, just kind of where I was at in my own soul... This, this stood out to me. Just the first three words there in verse 15. Do your best. Do your best. Now God calls us to fight our sin. Right? He never calls us to excuse it or justify it. And He calls us to work hard at whatever He's given us in our lives. We are to work hard at that. We are to pursue that. We are to do all we can do. For me, that's being a father and a husband and a pastor to you guys. That's part of what I'm called to work hard at and do. And with five other men, help shepherd you. But I wonder if you're like me sometimes and you fall into, you drift into a place of viewing God wrongly. You drift away from His grace. And you only see his justice. And so you wind up viewing him wrongly. 
as a graceless taskmaster who's handed down edicts and has expectations for, for me as a pastor or for you in your roles that you constantly, that I constantly fail at. And so it leaves me feeling defeated and like a failure before God because I constantly fail at it. Maybe someone else in here feels like that at times. And so then Monday I come and kind of feel in that way and I read this and I come to verse 15. And God's saying, Joe, do your best. Son, do, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. In other words, Joe, I know you're not going to do it perfectly. And that's the whole reason Jesus went to the cross for you. This is one guy put it, the gospel is good news. Wonderful, positive, invigorating, wholesome, nurturing news precisely because our relationship to God does not depend on our zeal, our efforts, and our generosity, but on Christ. That's what makes the good news such good news. And it's not, this is an error I think we make sometimes, it's not just good news about how we get in initially. It's good news that we come back to every day because we are prone to wander and sometimes wander into narcissism where we make it all about ourselves and what am I doing? What more do I need to do? How am I doing in this? And the gospel takes us from fixing our eyes on ourselves and turns us to fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we don't get Jesus, listen, and then move on to something else we come back to Jesus every day, back to his grace every day, back to his performance in our place for us every day, his obedience in the place of our lack of obedience, his holiness in the place of our lack of holiness. And we come back to that every day. And so for my brother or sister who can't imagine that God would love you because of what you've done where you've been, or maybe what is going on in your life right now. I pray that you would let go of such foolish thoughts like that and submit to the grace and the mercy that God has extended to you in Christ. Because God's level of love for you is not based upon your level of love for Him. It's based on what He did. It's based on who He is. Friend, Jesus loves you. He really, really, really does. And here's something else. He likes you. Sometimes I feel like God's just tolerating me, right? Just waiting for, this is that wrong view where it pops in, just waiting for me to make one more failure and then he's going to press the eject button. That's not how he works. He redeemed me. If you are in Christ, you've been redeemed by God who loves you and is for you. And has adopted you into his family and is a loving father over you, to you. 
And so he loves you even right where you are at right now. But he loves you too much to let you stay there. And so keep pressing on. In verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. And when you fail, remember the gospel. Remember his grace and his mercy and his love. And let him pick you up, dust you off, and then go again. Being diligent. Pressing. And so essential number one of a good disciple is to watch your mouth. Essential number two is to watch your life. And essential number three is this. To accurately handle the word of truth. Okay? To accurately, number three, to accurately handle the word of truth. Look at verse 15 again. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. Now we're kind of going into it, talking, looking at it from a false teaching standpoint. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so number three, accurately handle the word of truth. Now, remember, who is this letter written to originally? Timothy. It's in the title, right? It's written to Timothy, right? Timothy was Paul's protege, but he was also a pastor in Ephesus. So it's written particularly to this pastor in Ephesus. Now, verse 14, we see it says, remind them of these things. So we see it's also for the congregation, it's for his church and other churches, even down to us today. So it's clearly for, for both of those. And so in everything I'm about to say, it's to be true of all Christians. Okay, it is essential to being a good disciple that we all accurately handle the word of truth. True of all of us. But it's to be doubly true then of those who have the responsibility to regularly preach and teach the gathered assembly. That they be accurate, that they accurately handle the word of truth. And so I'm going to kind of focus on that just a little bit. Like, quite frankly, what you should expect of me or anybody you might hire to replace me or, or that we appoint to be an elder. They must above all things accurately handle the word of truth. But what exactly does that mean? That sounds, I mean, it's very Christianese. What, what does that mean? Let's break it down. Word of truth was the... Once for all, faith had been delivered by the saints, passed down from Paul to Timothy. All right? It's the gospel. For us, it's scripture. It's all of it. Okay? Because they were still writing the New Testament. This was a book that became ultimately recognized as officially part of the New Testament. And so for us, the word of truth is the scripture. Okay? It's the Bible. That's the word of truth. But this idea of handling accurately, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, the Greek word there is orthometeo. In that beginning, ortho, you hear that like with orthopedic, orthodontist, 
orthotics, orthodoxy, all those things. And that means straight, okay, straight. It literally means cutting straight, but the ortho part is straight. So like an orthodontist helps straighten your teeth. Orthodoxy, that's aligning yourselves with proper doctrine. Orthotics helps align your, you know, works in your feet to help align your biomechanics. Orthopedic, you know, they work to align things in your body properly. That's what the ortho, that's what the straight part means there. But the idea of, I talked about, you know, straight and aligning, but cutting, cutting straight. That's, that's what it means in its fullness, cutting straight. And it carries the connotation of like cutting a straight line or cutting a straight road or cutting a straight path. That's what that word means. And so when I was a kid, the road that we lived on was tiny. It was very small. In fact, my address was just this, Stegall, Rural Route 1, Rydell, Georgia. That was it. Right, Pine Log had lost its post office long ago, so we were in a larger geographic area called Rydell. It was just Stegall, Rural Route 1, right? 1993, they expanded that road. Actually, they, they made a new road and, and you know, got rid of that one, and it became widened. It became Highway 140, and instead of following the, the twists and the turns and the hills and the valleys of uh, that area, it, it cut through. So it cut out the curves, it was straight shot, and it cut through the hills and built up in the valleys so that it was straighter and so that trucks could go on it. It went around the little underpass through the train tracks that trucks couldn't get through. It went around that and made it, went over the train tracks. And so, like, when they were building it, it was awesome. Because I had a motorcycle. I was a dirt bike fanatic. Man, that was awesome. You could just let it rip out there. But once it got finished, I hated it. Made it a busy road. But even as much as I didn't like the road getting built like that, that idea of cutting through the hillsides and cutting out the curves and just being straight, cutting a straight path... That's what we're to do with Scripture. Christians in general and pastors in particular are to cut it straight, which means like my role is two parts. I'm to be accurate to what the author intended when he wrote the Scripture, and I'm to make it plain and understandable to you. That, that's, that's my role. I'm not to invent stuff. I'm not to misinterpret stuff. I'm not to rip things out of context and come up with all kinds of neat little things to tickle your ears and make you happy. I'm not to play linguistic gymnastics to get around the clear teaching of the text when it's hard. And neither are you to do these things as you read on your own. We're to get it straight and give it straight. This is what the good disciple does, a good workman. But the bad worker does not do this. In verse 18 swerves from the truth. And the illustration there, the connotation in, is like an archer. An archer takes aim and he shoots it way over here. He's not going at the target. That's the bad worker. See, the word of truth is our target. And we'll either hit it or we'll miss it when we shoot. Right? And it's a road. And as we cut the road through the hillside, we will either make it straight or we'll make it crooked. And as a result of what we do and how we teach, others will be 
bound to be affected for better or worse. If we cut the road straight, they will follow that way. If we cut the road crooked, they will follow that way. If we miss the mark when we shoot the arrow, the attention of our hearers will follow the error even as far off as it goes. And so this is why Paul is warning Timothy. He's warning them about, you know, Hymenaeus and Philetus because they're teaching a false gospel. And the damage of their false teaching is double. Look, it says at the end of verse Verse 16, look at it. But avoid irreverent babble. This is the false teaching, and he'll explain what it is in a minute. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So there's one of the dangers. And their talk will spread like gangrene. So there's the second one gangrene. I don't know that we really know what gangrene is anymore. And I don't think we see it a whole lot. What gangrene is, is it was a. Malady, Kelly could probably explain it a little bit better than I can uh, as a doctor, but where, like before there was antiseptic and before people understood good hygiene, where it would set up, it's like an infection, and it would just basically like spread like poison through the body. That was gangrene. It spread rapidly like poison through the body. And since we probably have never witnessed gangrene, for us, maybe a more poignant illustration might be cancer. It spreads. And so this false teaching, false teaching spreads like a cancer or like gangrene. And it upsets, there at verse 18, the faith of some. Now make sure you don't understand this. This is not like, oh, this is annoying. This kind of upsets me. This is upset like it upsets a boat. It turns it upside down and people drown. Unchecked gangrene kills and so just as we are to cut straight the word of truth so we must also cut out false teaching or it will metastasize and kill the body and so to illustrate this point paul names two men who he cut out of the congregation he excommunicated them their names are hymenaeus who we also met in first timothy and philetus And they were teaching a false doctrine on the resurrection, namely that it had already happened. Now, Jesus had risen from the dead, right? That has already happened. And, and for those who are believers in Christ, we've been raised up with Christ. But what, what he was teaching, the, the, and what we know, the actual physical bodily resurrection of believers, as well as the new heavens and the new earth, the glory of that, that that is still yet, even today, we're still waiting for that. They were saying that it had already happened. So if this world is a new heaven and a new earth, this is a bad deal. Right? But that's what they were saying. It was really because they had been influenced by culture. Ephesian culture denied any type of bodily resurrection for anyone who believed that because material things were bad, spiritual things were good, kind of pre-Gnosticism. And so in that culture, to, to see and talk about a bodily resurrection, I mean, you are a gullible, you are a fool, you, like, that's ridiculous. And so Hymenaeus and Philetus, to fit the culture, had adapted the Christian faith and 
swerved from the truth. It swerved from the never-changing truth of the gospel in order to accommodate the ever-changing culture. And friends, this is all around us today. Everywhere we look. But regardless of what is going on around us, good disciples, we don't do this. We stay yoked to the word of truth and we handle it accurately in its context. And where it butts up with culture, for the good disciple, Scripture always wins in that. We do not conform Scripture to fit ourselves and our wishes and our wants. We conform ourselves and our wishes and our wants to fit Scripture. Scripture is our authority. God is our authority. And this is His revealed will to us. We conform ourselves to fit this because it's the word of truth and life and joy. And so what should Christians do in the midst of the prevalence of false teachers all around us? And we should avoid their irreverent speech and babble. We should stay on the path of truth that's cut straight. And we should do one more thing. We should avoid despair. We should avoid despair. Sometimes Christians are, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's been doing that. Can I say that? I don't know. It's been doing that since Adam and Eve fell. Of course it is. And so don't despair as that's happening. Like despite the world being filled with all these Hymenaeuses and Philetuses who deny the Christian essentials, Paul reminds us of the comforting truth that God's firm foundation stands. And so number four, stand strong on the firm foundation. Right? Essential number four, stand strong on the firm foundation. Look at verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands. So he said all of this stuff about all this false teaching and, and heresy, upsetting the faith of some. They're, you know, ships are getting turned upside down. People drowning, metaphorically speaking. And then he says, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. He has His church. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so it's almost like Paul is saying, Timothy, don't fret. Like when you get scared, when you get nervous, when, you, when you're getting down on this about how much sin there is in the world and how much false teaching there is in the church, remember, God's firm foundation stands. And the foundation probably refers to the church as a whole with Christ as the rock underneath that and with Christ as the chief cornerstone, as the Bible puts it in other places. And so Paul is saying... In spite of the work of evildoers and evil teachers, God's firm firm foundation still stands firm with a double seal. I don't know, those of you who follow me on Facebook, you may have seen last week, I wished a congratulations, 150th birthday of the church that I grew up in. They celebrated 150 years last year, had big homecoming, whatever. I think they had like 120 people, which is 
That's huge for them. So they celebrated that. And if you go back and look at, there's plaques all over the place, you know, in there of different buildings that they've built or different rooms that they've added on. And uh, those things are like littered with my like family tree. But there's one outside on, on, on the corner of the fellowship hall. And I used to have to mow the grass and, you, you know, always get back there and trim the bushes so you could actually see it because... It talks about, you know, the history of the church, when it was built, when this part was added, who the pastor was, and that it's dedicated to the glory of God. This is kind of the image that Paul's given here, that there's the church, and it has a seal on it, like that, that thing that, that said some very important things. There's a seal on God's church, and the seal has two parts. The first part of the seal says and talks about the Lord knows those who are His. That's the first part of the seal. And this is just saying that God knows who His children are. He has a people, right? That He's calling out, that will listen to Him, that will follow Him. And He knows who they are. And He can't be fooled by hypocrisy. Now that's a kind of a warning thing, but now an encouraging thing. Nor can he be fooled or, or, or can personal failure render us like not part of his people. He recognizes his own, no matter how dirty we may get. Because it's the Lord who saves. And it's the Lord who preserves. And he will build his church. And so the firm foundation stands. He knows those who are his. That's seal number one. Seal number two, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so if seal number one was about God preserving, seal number two is about his people persevering. So you see both divine sovereignty, I know who are my people, and you see human responsibility. Hey, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The, the, the church is filled with people. This is what the church looks like. It's filled with people who doggedly reject sin. Now they are not, I am not, you are not sinless. That's not what the church is made up of. All of us have sinned, right? And some of us in terrible ways or, or we're in the midst of some terrible ways. But the church is made up of people who hate their sin. And they devote themselves to living above and beyond the, the pull of it. And they cling to Christ as their only hope at being made right with God. And Christ will answer that. And so we're not talking about perfect when it says, let everyone who names the name of the word depart from iniquity. We're not talking about perfect, but we are talking about pursuing a righteous life. Okay, not sinless, but facing in the right direction trajectory of your life this is the seal on the foundation but friends i think paul really wants to comfort us here that while we may tremble on the foundation that sits on top of the rock and we may tremble on it while we're there it never trembles underneath us we may tremble. He never does. 
Like in the midst of all the changes and the shifts and the doubts and the false teaching of 2,000 years, it has not in any way affected the firm foundation. We stand by faith on the solid rock. And He's immovable and He's unshakable and He's kind and He's good and He's loving and He's for us and He's forgiving. And so let us go out into the world and live for Him. Watching our mouths, watching our lives, accurately handling the word of truth, and standing strong on the firm foundation. For these are not just words to give to graduates. These are essentials for good disciples. So let's live them. Let's pray. God, you are kind. I wish my vocabulary was bigger that I knew a better word for your kindness. Your graciousness, your mercy. You are good. In every sense, you are perfect. And we're not. And yet you saw fit to redeem, to send Jesus to rescue any who would repent and believe and cling to what Christ has done to be what makes us right with you, not what we've done. And so, Father, that's, that's all we have. We have nothing to barter with before you. Thank you for the rescue that Jesus provides. Thank you that it's not just about how we get in, but it's a, he, His gospel keeps us in, sustains us, perseveres, preserves us. And so we praise you, God. We worship you. We bow before you. We pray that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Emblazon our hearts to live for you. To stop playing around with you. And live with clean hands and a clean heart built upon the one foundation of Christ. And live... joyously and courageously and boldly all melted together for you. For the praise of your glorious grace and for the good of our own souls and those around us in the world, let us be your people in your world until you come again Or take us home. Fill us with this. In Christ's name. Amen.